We're continuing in our, our series in the letter of First John after a break from last week. Just a brief summary of where we've come so far in this letter. In chapter 1, 1 to 10, we saw that uh, we know that God is light. He's made himself clearly known in Jesus Christ. And when we come to him in repentance and faith, we can know the joy of authentic, life-giving relationships with the Father and the Son and with one another. Then uh, in chapter 2 we saw that we've come, we know that we have come to know him. Knowing this God who is light results in a transformed life. We'll find it a pleasure to obey God's commands, especially because at the heart of his commands is the command to love. It doesn't mean that we won't continue to battle with sin, but it does mean that in our battle we have the solid assurance of his mercy and grace that keeps us abiding in him. And then we saw that we know the truth. As we live and as we love in the battle, we shouldn't be fearful of what may come in the future because our hope is grounded in the promise of the return of Jesus and that when he appears, we will be like him. In light of this, we must stand firm on the truth of the gospel that we've received. Not let anyone lead us astray with new and improved versions that offer no hope. Now I mentioned last time that John's way of writing is unlike the other New Testament letters. His trajectory is not in a straight line, but more of a circular or a spiral path as he keeps coming back to the same ideas. And I trust that by now you've seen that the two key ideas that he keeps reiterating are the truth of the gospel of Jesus and the call to love one another. Uh, We saw that today in our reading, particularly in uh, the statement he makes where he talks about us um, keeping his commandments and doing what pleases him. And then he says, what, what is the commandments that we keep? We are, well, we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. There's the truth of the gospel. And what is it that pleases him? Well, we love one another, just as he commanded us. So the truth of the gospel and the call to love. In today's passage, we'll see that these two are intricately related Faith in Jesus Christ and the fruit of love are like the left and the right hand. When you learn to drive, I hope that your teacher emphasised the importance of keeping both hands on the wheel. If you're like me, you spend a lot of your time driving with one hand, unless there's a particularly tricky obstacle ahead or unless you see a police car ahead or in your rearview mirror. But we know that the best way to drive is with both hands on the wheel. Similarly with the Christian life, both hands of faith and love. 
need to be on the wheel if we're to be living a life that glorifies God. What does it look like then to love one another as he calls us to? Well, sometimes in order to understand something, it can be helpful to see what that thing is not. And this is what John does when he points us to the example of Cain and Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. From your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain looked at his brother and he saw a person who was in a right relationship with God. And this relationship with God was reflected in his actions. This is important for us to see. Abel was already right with God through faith. As we see in Hebrews, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Abel's righteousness through faith led to his righteous actions. Cain's heart, however, was turned away from God, demonstrated by the fact that when God reached out to him, he rejected it. And his broken relationship with God is reflected in his actions of anger and ultimately murder. And the consequences for him were devastating. He puts himself under a curse which simply means being cut off from God's goodness and blessing. And he becomes a wanderer, a restless wanderer on the earth. This is the story of the human race. And so John is telling us, don't be like Cain. You're born again. You are new creatures in Christ. Your identity as a child of the Father through Jesus the Son makes you distinctly different to the rest of the world. So don't be like Cain. What was it that made Cain angry? What was it that made him hate his brother? Well, John tells us because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. When we're living in a state of estrangement from the Father, not willing to live the way he designed us, the way he calls us to, 
We'll be confronted when we see someone who loves him, who's living in obedience to him, because their actions will shine a light on our own actions. Our conscience will be pricked. And what's the natural sinful human response to having our sinfulness highlighted by another person's righteousness? Well, it's that we attack the person. We don't merely disapprove of their actions, but we want to uh, attack the person. It's what uh, in legal terms is called ad hominem, which is Latin for against the person. We do it when deep down we know we have no argument against a person, but we just don't want to face up to the fact that they're right and we're wrong, or they're righteous and we are unrepentant. And so we try to destroy their credibility by attacking their character. John says, don't be like Cain, who was angry and killed his brother. Now John tells Christians to be prepared for this kind of thing to happen to them. The world will hate us, we're told. But he also warns Christians to not be participants in this kind of behaviour. A Christian who hates is a contradiction. As he says in verse 15, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. How can you love the father but want to murder your brother or sister? To drive home the point, he's referring here to Jesus' own teaching that murder isn't just the external action but begins with the desires of the heart. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. But now look at verse 16 in stark contrast to the envious, murderous hate of the sinful human heart displayed in the story of Cain, Jesus shows us the true nature of love. Rather than wanting to take the life of the other, we see that true love means willing to lay down our lives for the other. As God the Son, he didn't remain distant or aloof, but he instead came down to us and became our brother. Our actions were evil and his actions were righteous. And so we, the human race, we hated him. We wanted him removed from our world and so we killed him. We were, we are like Cain. We are Cain in the story. We took our brother Jesus out to the field and we murdered him. And like Abel... His blood fell to the ground and called out to God. But it called not to demand justice, but declared that justice has been met. His blood calls out for mercy because Jesus had come as the second, as the better Abel, willingly laying down his life for us. He took our place. 
He became a curse for us. He was abandoned and cut off from God's blessing and goodness, which is what we deserve. This is the level of love that he has shown to us. This is love, not that we love God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Anyone who knows and loves him and knows his love for them is called to the same manner of love. And we need to see that as we seek to live out this call of Jesus to love as he loved, that it won't mean the world will suddenly start to like us. Not long before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It may sound surprising to us. Jesus said, the world has hated me. Many people today would say that they have no problem with Jesus, that they like Jesus, they have great respect or even love for him. It's just that they don't like organised religion and they certainly don't like hypocritical Christians. But whenever I talk with someone who has that view, I often find out that they actually know very little of Jesus. They're basing their view more on popular ideas about him than what they've actually read of him in the Gospels. The Jesus of the Gospels is a Jesus who speaks in black and white terms about sin and judgment, about the coming of God's kingdom and those who will be in and those who will be out. He speaks about the fact that his central mission was to go to the cross to redeem sinners and to destroy the works of the devil. This Jesus of the Gospel speaks of the church as his bride He makes the church central to the plan of God for the world. He calls the church little flock and friends and he describes us as those who have been given to me by the Father. So to say I love Jesus but I don't really like the church would be for Jesus a contradictory statement. Jesus would say of Christians, of us, his people, these are my people, warts and all. Yes, they will at times be foolish and hypocritical. They may even at times sin in a way that makes the world cringe. But they are my people. I laid down my life for them. If you say you love me, then you must also love the ones I love. If you don't like my church then you show you don't really like me. So we have this call, this clear call to be distinctly different to the world and to love with the same standard of self-sacrificial love that Jesus himself shows. And this should stir something up within our hearts. We, We can't sit comfortably with this command 
and the high standard of it. It should stir within us what's been called a holy discontent, where I know what I should be and I know by God's grace I will be that when I see him face to face. But I'm not that now. I am the hypocrite. I am the fool. I don't love my brothers and sisters as I should. I do things that discredit the gospel rather than adorn it. There should be this discontent, the high call of loving as he loved us, but the reality is we look at our hearts and our lives that we don't do that and we can't do it, we struggle to do it. There should be a discontent, but it shouldn't be a restlessness. Because while we are like Cain in our sinfulness, we're not like Cain in his hopelessness. Cain didn't know hope because he remained under condemnation for his actions, because he refused to receive the grace of God that was offered to him. We know hope because we know forgiveness. In Christ we know righteousness and sanctification and wisdom and redemption. We may be unhappy with what we see in ourselves now, but it's only because we know the promise of what we will be. And all that simply means is every day, every moment, we continually live by the grace of God, completely dependent upon his mercy and grace. But in verses 19 to 24, John tells us how to respond to this discontent, how to reassure our hearts before him. You may be in a place where at this moment your heart is condemning you or you may be in a place where your heart is giving you confidence. But notice that in verses 20 and 21 there's one thing that remains constant. Even if our heart wavers between feeling condemned and feeling confident and that one thing that never changes is God and his disposition towards us. When condemnation comes to our hearts, we're called to say to ourselves, this is just my heart speaking to me, but I can't always trust my heart. There is one who is greater than my heart and he knows everything. He sees the truth. He sees the things that I cannot see. He sees what his son Jesus has done for me in his death and resurrection and it's on that basis that he relates to me. I may try to relate to him based on how my heart is feeling at the time, whether it's good or bad. I may feel shame or honour, guilt or freedom based on however my day or week or year has gone. But none of that determines how he relates to me. He's bigger than my heart. And I need to remind and reassure and persuade myself of this fact. What that word means, persuade. We persuade our hearts because he's bigger than our hearts. His constant faithfulness to me, no matter when and how and how hard I may fail and fall. Verses 25 to 
John gives us another reason to be sure about our relationship with the Father in verse 24. He says, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Way back in the Old Testament, God promised, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See the link here between the gift of the Holy Spirit and obedience. God doesn't say, I'll force you to do the right thing, even if it's against your will. No, the Spirit comes and makes us into new people. He gives us a new heart. And we obey the Father then from the heart, not from guilty obligation. How does the Spirit do this? Well, it's not so much through a subjective experience or or a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. I think John here is referring to the day of Pentecost, when the Father fulfilled his promise to send his Spirit, not just on kings and priests and prophets, but on all of his people, young and old, male and female. That's why he uses this term, the Spirit whom he has given us. The sending of the Spirit was like a seal on all of the Father's promises. He showed us that Jesus was truly risen from the dead and now rules over all things. The Spirit shows us that God the Father can be trusted to keep his word. He shows that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus has a secure relationship with him such that they can say, I live in him and he lives in me. These are the truths that we need to keep reminding ourselves of when we waver in faith and confidence. The objective historical action of God in history and his ongoing action in the present. The same Father and Son who sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost are the same Father and Son who send the Spirit today. And it's by the Spirit that we are able to cry out both Jesus is Lord, we know the Son, and to cry out, Abba, Father, we know the Father by the Spirit. So see how it then in verses uh, 4 verses 1 to 6, that this standard of the Gospel announcement of what has been accomplished in Jesus Christ is what we're called to use when we need to ask the question, is what I'm seeing or experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit or some other spirit. It seems that the Christians that John was writing to were encountering teaching and having experiences that weren't leading them to true faith in Jesus and were actually undermining their confidence in him and wasn't bearing fruit in love for one another. He points to a very specific teaching in verse 2. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The false teachers they were encountering were rejecting this truth that 
uh, Jesus was truly and fully human. Because they had imported non-biblical ideas into their faith that they had borrowed from pagan and Greek ideas, they couldn't comprehend the idea that the body was good, that the physical creation was good. They thought only the spiritual is what is good and will last forever. They rejected, therefore, the idea that Jesus, the Son, could have actually taken on a body, a real physical flesh and bone body. They couldn't come to the the fact that it was actually Jesus in his body who suffered on the cross. Now, the the problem with this teaching was twofold. So not only was it a false portrayal of Jesus, and so it was a false gospel and it was actually dishonouring to Jesus because it didn't portray him correctly, but its ideas of flesh is bad, spirit is good, led to kind of a super spirituality in which the body and the creation and people's physical needs don't ultimately matter. The truly spiritual person, they thought, was the person who didn't care about the body, but only focused on the spirit. What it meant was that they could look at their brother in need, as we saw in 3.17, and even though they had the world's goods, they saw their brother in need and they closed their heart against him or her. Why? Because, well, they should just not worry about their physical needs and just focus on their spiritual needs. Why are they worried about things like food and drink and health? Just get rid of those things and focus on the spirit. So see how there the insistence on the truth of the gospel matters. Their false gospel meant that they were not bearing the fruit of loving one another truly as Christ loved them. Knowing the truth of the gospel matters if we are to be able to truly love, if we are to have both hands of faith in Jesus Christ and love for our brothers and sisters on the wheel. True doctrine matters because it gives an anchor for our faith. And faith that is anchored in the truth flows into love. If you have a genuine desire to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you also have a responsibility to know the gospel, to have its truth filter through your thinking, to shape the way you see life, the way you see the world. Love is faith. In action, and it's only faith that's grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ that will enable us to truly love as He loved us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that great love with which you've loved us in Jesus Christ. That even when our actions were evil and yours were righteous, still you came without anger, without hatred without murderous intent, but you came in love and the Son laid down his life
for us who were sinners to bring us back into your family. Father, we pray that the truth and the wonder of that love, of your action to redeem us, might so pervade our thinking and our feeling and our actions that we cannot help but express that love to one another and to the world around us. Father, we confess that even when we try to love, and especially when we try in our own strength, we fail dismally. We need, Father, for your spirit to fill us, to empower us, to make our hearts new, that we might in word and in deed be a living demonstration of your love and grace to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's finish by standing and singing our final hymn, a hymn of uh, the love of God towards us and how that takes hold of us and transforms us. Let's stand and sing.